Well, John, part three, and uh, we're, we're starting at chapter 14. Um, this is just after the Passover meal, or the Last Supper, um, and Jesus and the disciples have had the meal, and Jesus has washed their feet and given them the appropriate teaching concerning that. Uh, Judas has left to betray Jesus, and with that done, Jesus now continues to teach the 11 disciples who are left. So, um, chapter 14, we're going to be reading quite a lot from the text itself um, in these last chapters of John. So let's, let's, let's start just with the first four verses. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And of course what Jesus is saying here is he's talking about the rapture. The disciples knew full well from the Old Testament that eventually Jesus would return and establish the Jewish kingdom on earth. And yet here, Jesus is talking about a coming, not when he does that, but when he comes and he takes all those who believe in him back to heaven. And, and this is what he's talking about. In my Father's house are many rooms. So there is the rapture when Jesus comes to take the church back to heaven. And of course, we'll be in heaven with Jesus during the time of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist on earth. And then after that, you get the second coming when Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth. And Jesus, having said that, uh, Thomas um, asks the way to where he was going. He says, well, you know, Thomas says, well, how do we get there, Lord? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He says, Thomas, I'm the way. I'm the only way you're going to get to heaven. And here is the utter exclusiveness of the claims and teaching of Jesus. Virtually unlike any other religious leader, teacher or anything, Jesus made it quite clear that he is the only way. Um, and Philip then says, show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus replies that he is in the Father, and that the Father is in him, and that anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. And there again you have the Trinity. Jesus isn't actually mentioning the Holy Spirit there, but we're going to see lots about the Holy Spirit tonight as we continue. And uh, because obviously Jesus was the way in which God revealed himself in human form, in a way that we could relate to and understand. And Jesus tells them that they should believe what he says, uh, he said, that, that should be enough, just what I say. But he says, but if you can't believe what I say, you've got my miracles. And he says, you can always look back on my miracles, because remember, Jesus proved to them, not just on the basis of the Old Testament, but in actual fact, the Pharisaic Judaism of the time that they'd been taught. In every way, Jesus fulfilled all the promises and the messianic signs of Pharisaic Judaism. He proved beyond doubt who he was, that he was who he claimed to be, God become man, the only way for people to be saved. And then he goes on to say that 
through faith, by trusting in him, that others will do these signs that he's done, and even greater things because he's going to the Father. And of course, what happened, because Jesus went to the Father, that was when the Holy Spirit eventually was poured out on the church at Pentecost. And then Jesus was no more limited to, 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 to one body in one place. When Jesus walked the earth, he was one man. He could only work miracles where he was standing in any one place. But since the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, Jesus now lives in every believer, and through 2,000 years he's been spread out all over the earth. Therefore, the corporate Jesus has accomplished more through the corporate church than he did in his ministry when he walked the earth, or at least when it came to preaching and working signs and wonders. Right, let's, let's, let's keep reading. We'll pick up at verse... 13 and uh, he says I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the son may bring glory to the father you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it now there is Jesus's promise to answer our prayers obviously to pray in his name must be to pray under his authority in the name of means under the authority of you get arrested in the name of the Lord don't you so obviously it doesn't mean that we can pray whatever we want and that, you know, if we believe hard enough, God is, you know, duty-bound to do it. Obviously, prayer according to God's will uh, will be answered. Then carrying on, he says, If you love me, you will obey my commands. Now that's the test of discipleship, isn't it? If you love me, you will obey my commands. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever the spirit of truth. Now here's the Holy Spirit coming into the scene. Um, this, this word another means another of exactly the same uh, kind. And uh, in the first epistle of John, John tells us that Jesus is our counsellor or advocate. Same Greek word. So what Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit is going to be the means by which I return to you when the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit will be everything to you that I am. And he goes on to say, The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit was with them at that time, uh, but as we're going to see later on, there came a time when the Holy Spirit actually came to live inside the disciples. It says, Before long the world will, well, will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On the day that you will realise that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. So that there's, you know, like, to be a believer is to, Jesus is in the Father, the Father is in Jesus, but the believer is in Jesus and the believer is in the Father. We're all wrapped up, you know, like in his family. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and show myself to him. Uh, you know, which, which is all pretty remarkable stuff. Now, at this point, Judas... Now, this, this isn't Judas Iscariot who's gone to, to betray. There was a, another of the disciples called Judas. And just, just to conf confuse you, in, in Matthew and Mark's Gospel, he's called Thaddeus. Now, we saw last time, didn't we, that another uh, time before last, that Nathaniel is called Nathaniel in John's Gospel, but Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels. All very confusing, but nevertheless, Judas um, sort of says, you know, well, why, why aren't you going to show yourself to the world? Because Jesus has said, you know, that you're the ones who are going to see me, you know, after I rise from the dead 
not the world. And uh, Jesus answers in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Because the point is, Jesus is saying, but we didn't come for the world. You know, we came for those who were going to believe. You know, we've come for those who are prepared to love me and obey my commandments. And, and there he says, look, I and the Father, we are going to come and make our, homes, our home in you. And he's already said the Holy Spirit is going to be in you. And, and so it's not just that Jesus, as it were, lives in our heart. The Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, uh, live uh, in us as believers. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, basically Jesus is, is, is saying there, look, the reason I'm not going to show myself to the world, Judas, is because what's the point? The world doesn't love me. The world has no part in me. We have come for you, those of you who are going to, um, who, who are going to obey my commands. Now, in verse 25, this is tremendously important. All this I have spoken while still with you. But a counsellor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Now, obviously here, this is Jesus talking to the disciples. And these were the guys who were mainly uh, responsible for writing the New Testament. Now, there are others as well, Paul the Apostle and James and Jude. But certainly the disciples, the apostles here, played a major part in writing the New Testament and overseeing the writing of the New Testament. So that when someone who wasn't an apostle wrote something, it could only be accepted as inspired scripture if it was, it were okay by the apostles. And of course, what Jesus is saying here, when the Holy Spirit does come to you, he is going to teach you all things. And he's going to bring to remembrance everything that I've taught you. This is Jesus' promise to the apostles that the Holy Spirit will be the means whereby they're going to be able to write down the new covenant in the form in which we have it in the New Testament. And then he goes on to say, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you peace as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And there's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy and peace. And Jesus says, look, the peace that I give you is my peace, not, not the peace that the world knows. Because people in the world, they're at peace if everything's a-okay. They're at peace if they're not troubled. The point about having the peace of Jesus is that we can be at peace precisely when everything's falling down around our ears. Because it's the peace of Jesus. We may be in circumstances at times that trouble and concern us, but God isn't troubled, God isn't concerned. He doesn't have any problems. He's not worried. And therefore, regardless of our circumstances, we can enjoy his peace, his outlook on things, that steady, unruffled, untroubled outlook, even though maybe things are, are very far from how ideally um, we would want them to be. And he goes on and, and he said, You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you because the Holy Spirit was the means by which Jesus would come back to them. And he said, If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father, and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And then he says, Come now, let us leave. 
and he's, he's saying here that it's better for the disciples that he returns to heaven and that they receive the Holy Spirit. From their point of view, they'd have rather Jesus stayed with them. And, and, and the idea of Jesus leaving them wasn't a very good thought for them. And they couldn't conceive of, of what life was going to be without him. But what Jesus is saying, if they really understood his presence with them in the power of the Spirit was going to be far better for them than having his physical presence um, on the earth. And he says that the Prince of the World was now coming, because remember Jesus is about to go to the cross, and it was on the cross that he dealt with Satan. It was on the cross that he dealt with the Prince of the World. And, um, and, and the world would see the obedience of Jesus to the Father. And it was Jesus' obedience to the Father that was going to undo the results of Satan's disobedience when he rebelled and, and took a third of the angels with him. And then carrying on in um, chapter 15, and uh, we now get the, uh, the teaching of Jesus about being the, 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 the true vine. And he says, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. That's why we go through tough times. We bear a bit of fruit, make a little bit of progress in the Lord, and then the Lord cuts us back. Problems, difficulties come along. You know, I mean, he's sort of like the rose lover. He's got a lovely rose bush doing nice, and then he goes and hacks it to bits. You say, what are you hacking your rose bush to bits? Oh, because I love it, and if I do this, it will be even more fruitful next year. You know, and there's the, you know, the, the picture of the gardener pruning back. And, um, and then he says again, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He said that when he washed their feet, as we saw last time. He says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. There's our oneness with Jesus. He's the vine, we are the branches. But what is the difference between the vine and the branches? If you've got, you know, a vineyard and you go to a vine, you say, right, okay, point to the vine. Now point to the branches. If you point to the branches, you're pointing to the vine. That is our oneness with Jesus. We are one in him. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, and I in, in him, and the man will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's Jesus who provides the fruit. Everything comes from him, not us. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. There's more you know, promises Francis to prayer. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Bear much fruit, fruit of the Holy Spirit, the life, the holiness of Jesus. Now, this bit about if anyone doesn't remain in Jesus, that they're, they're thrown into the fire, all right? This isn't believers losing their salvation. Jesus is speaking to the apostles. They are all Jews. Now, the Old Testament taught that Israel was God's vine simply by virtue of being Israel. So up to the point when Jesus died and Israel was cut out and the church age started at Pentecost, up till that time, every Jew was a branch in the vine simply by virtue of being a Jew. Didn't mean they were saved, but they were simply a branch in God's vine because they were Jews. Now the time was coming when all that was going to change. No one was going to be saved just because they were Jewish. And so what Jesus is saying, the disciples, they're going to remain branches on the vine because they believe in Jesus. 
But all the Jews who don't believe in Jesus, when God cuts Israel, as it were, out and replaces Israel with the church, then obviously all the Jews are going to lose their status as being branches in God's vine because they don't believe in Jesus. And because they don't believe in Jesus, they're unbelievers and therefore they're not saved and therefore they end up in the lake of fire. So it's not believers losing their salvation. Jesus is here talking about the fate that is going to befall all the Jews who are though, although branches on the vine up to that point by virtue of being Jews, now lose that status and you can only be a branch in the vine if you actually believe in Jesus, which the apostles did, but which most of the rest of Israel certainly didn't. And then moving on to um, verse 9, uh, Jesus, he says, Remain in me and in my love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. What Jesus is saying there, to stay in love with me, it's one thing to be in love with Jesus. Do you remember the Ephesian church in Revelation were kind of castigated by God because they'd lost their first love? And, you know, sometimes when you become a Christian, there, there can be sometimes these first flushes of great enthusiasm and love for Jesus, and it's all very new. And there's a great danger as the years go by that you lose that. But Jesus is saying, if you want to remain in my love, then you do so, how? By obedience. I mean, he's already said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So if we want to say, do I love Jesus? The answer to that isn't, do I have you know, sort of like fluffy feelings when I play, pray or something. You know, do, do, I, do I glow when I'm reading the Bible? It's, it's absolute. You may, and that's great if you do. But the point is, that's neither here nor there. What matters, do we love Jesus? Do we live in obedience to him? That is the test of discipleship. In verse 11 he says, I've told you this, that your joy, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete goes on, my command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And here we've seen Jesus talk about, I give you my peace. He talks here about, I give you my joy. And he talks about loving each other as he loves us, having his love. And of course in Galatians, when Paul deals with the fruit of the Spirit, he starts off with love, joy and peace. There are other things, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, self-control, etc, etc. But the mainstay of it is love, joy and peace. In another way, you can say that there's kind of one fruit, but nine flavours. The fruit is love, uh, but joy and peace and faithfulness and kindness and goodness and self are all aspects of it. You know, one fruit, but nine flavours. But here you've got the mainstay, love, joy and peace. And it's the love and the joy and the peace of Jesus himself. That's what we can share him if we remain in his love, if we remain in obedience, i.e. if we stay in fellowship with him in an ongoing way. And then he says, I no longer call you servants, although obviously we are his servants, we're his sons, we're friends. We're still servants, obviously. It's right that we serve him. But he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's plans. Instead, I call you friends 
for everything I learned from my Father I have made known to you. So although we're servants, we're, we're, we're those special servants who are friends. And Jesus has made us his friends. He reveals his will to us. He lets us in on what he's doing. He's not kind of like, you know, the, the officious master who just calls on his slave when he wants a job done. Here we have a master who counts himself the friend of his servants. And, and he says, and you can see it, because look how much I've told you. I'm, I'm letting you in on everything I'm doing. I'm bringing you all into my confidence. And God reveals his will to us, because he doesn't ultimately look on us as servants, although it is obviously right that we serve him. But he looks upon us as his friends, and obviously we are his children. And, and, and that's a, an amazing situation to be in. And then Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. Again, answers to prayer tied in there with um, fruit, obedience, living the Christian life. And, um, you know, all the time answers to prayer are tied into not, not, not what we want, but praying according to God's will. And Jesus saying, look, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Remember all the disciples, he called them. I mean, yes, they gave themselves to him, but he called them, and that's the same with all of us. And then he repeats, this is my command, love each other. So there you've got that again. All the time, love. We're chosen and appointed to bear fruit, and the fruit of the Spirit is the love of Jesus himself. And then Jesus teaches about what um, they're going to come up against. He says, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoke to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in the law, they hated me without reason, which is um, a, a quote from Psalm 69. And, you know, there again have Jesus saying, look, the world hates me, and if you follow me, you'll be persecuted and hated in the same way that I am. And uh, he said, look, I've worked all these miracles. Everyone knows who I am, but they still refuse to believe in me. And of course, this dispels the notion, if only we saw enough miracles, loads and loads of people get converted. That isn't true at all. Great to see miracles, yes, but we mustn't ever think that miracles are going to convert people. They're not. All the miracles Jesus worked, people still rejected him, because they're of the world, and the disciples were of the Father. And so, therefore, we must be prepared for persecution in whatever way it happens. If we're Christians, we're no longer of the world, and the world is going to feel uncomfortable with us, and therefore 
the world will uh, persecute us one way or the other. Then verse 26, he says, when the counsellor comes, back to the Holy Spirit now, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to testify to the truth of who Jesus is. And that is the function of the church, to testify to the truth of who Jesus is. So Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to work in partnership with you in order to testify the truth concerning me, concerning Jesus. Right, now we'll move into chapter 16. And uh, the reason I'm reading this is because try and actually expound it without reading it would take so very long. It's best we just read it and I comment loosely, at, at least on these verse, you know, these chapters 14 to 16. Right, chapter 16. All this I've told you so that you'll not go astray. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you'll remember I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. So Jesus preparing them all the time for the persecution that they were going to experience. Again, back to a theme we've just seen. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you're filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So again, Jesus is, the disciples are starting to fall in that Jesus is going away, and they're getting a bit upset now. So they've stopped saying, where are you going? Earlier on, in, you know, in the last chapter, they're saying, where are you going, Lord? And they were, oh, you know, wow, can we come and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now they're beginning to realise he's going away. And where he's going, they can't follow, and they're getting worried. They don't understand, but they're getting concerned. And Jesus is saying, look, I can see you're getting filled with grief. But he said, look, it's better for you that I go away. You receiving the Holy Spirit because I've gone away is going to be better for you than me staying with you. They couldn't see it. How could they? But nevertheless, he's, you know, reassuring them about that. And then he says, look, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. In regards, sorry, he will convict the world of guilt in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regards to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regards to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regards to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to do three things in regards to the world. In regards to believers, the Holy Spirit enables us to bear fruit. He sanctifies us. He releases the life of Jesus within us. But in regards to the world, he does three things. He convicts the world of sin. And he does so because the world doesn't believe in Jesus. Now then, in the Salvation series, we saw when Jesus died on the cross, he took the sin of the world away. The barrier between the world and God was sin. When Jesus died, he took the sin barrier away. And we saw last time that he's the door of the sheep now. So the sin barrier is gone. Jesus stands in its place as the door to the sheep. And if anyone wants to walk 
believe in Jesus, they walk through Jesus as the open door into salvation. So, the sin for which people end up in the lake of fire is not believing in Jesus. They exclude themselves. So, the sin barrier gone, Jesus the door of the sheep. Therefore, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. That is what is keeping people from being saved. It's not their sins. Jesus dealt with their sins on the cross. It's the fact that they will not believe in Jesus. So they're staying on the side of the world, which obviously is going to end up in the lake of fire. But if they went through, if they believed in Jesus, they could be saved. And then secondly, he says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because Jesus was going to the Father. And I mean, the point is that when Jesus went to the Father, he sat down at the right hand of God. He had accomplished absolutely everything. Redemption was completed. Everything that God's holiness and righteousness required in order for the world to be saved was completed when Jesus died on the cross. He ascended back into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. It's done. All righteousness has been fulfilled because Jesus has gone to the Father. And then judgment because the prince of this world is now judged. All authority has been given to Jesus. He's ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He's at the place of all authority, okay. In doing so, he's dealt with Satan, stitched Satan up good and proper. But the point is, the world still remains under the authority of Satan because unbelievers are still siding with him against God. And so there's judgment on the world because the cross was a judgment on Satan and Satan is the God of this world. And so Jesus is saying, look, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to be in partnership with you as the church in testifying to the truth about me. But the ramifications of the truth about Jesus include these things. God's judgment on sin of not believing in Jesus, the righteousness that Jesus fulfilled that's given to those who believe in him and the judgment that has come on Satan as the God of this world. And so therefore we're seeing there the aspect. And when Jesus preached, it wasn't believe in me, it was repent and believe. And when the early church preached, and we'll see this when we come on to Acts, it wasn't just believe and be saved, it was turn from your sins and believe on Jesus and be saved. So conviction of sin is, is vital if the Holy Spirit is to bring people to Jesus. Right, now carrying on in, in, in verse 12, and again we've um, seen this a bit already and Jesus goes back to it. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Then he says, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Because obviously they were going to see him again. He's going to die, but they saw him again, obviously, after he was raised from the dead. Now, what he's saying here, he says, look, there's much more that I've got to tell you, but I haven't got time. I can't tell you everything now. But he says the Holy Spirit will. Now, this is vitally important. We have in the Gospels an awful lot of the teaching of Jesus. The disciples heard it with their own ears. 
The Holy Spirit brought it to remembrance as they were writing the Gospels and writing the New Testament. Well, there's an awful lot of teaching in the New Testament, largely came through Paul, in fact, but not exclusively. But Jesus never taught while he was on earth physically. The Holy Spirit showed the believers after the day of Pentecost. So up to this point, the apostles have been receiving teaching from Jesus direct physically. But after Jesus died and rose again and ascended, they continued to receive Jesus' teaching through the Holy Spirit. Some of it was direct from Jesus. You remember Paul. Paul actually spent some time in heaven with Jesus physically. Well, Paul didn't know if he was physical, but certainly Jesus was in heaven, and, and, and Jesus was, was, was giving him Bible studies in heaven. But the point is, these promises, sometimes you hear people quoting it as if, you know, this is a promise that the Holy Spirit is going to keep revealing more truth to the church today. None of it. This is Jesus saying to the disciples, there will be more teaching that you will receive from the Holy Spirit. But the vital thing is, it was the apostles who received it. So, and, 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 and it is all in the Bible. The Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, the Epistles, it's all there. Or the Epistles of the Apostles, you could say even. And, you know, so, so this was Jesus saying, the Holy Spirit will finish off giving you my teaching. All right. And ultimately, it will get written down in the New Testament. So, um, that's what that bit's about. Now then... He, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while we don't understand what he's saying? They're getting confused now. They, they don't understand, well, they haven't got a clue what Jesus is talking about. I mean, they really are getting completely uh, confused. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and he said, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you'll see me no more, and after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. When her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of the joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I'll see you again. You will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. He's saying, look, you're going to have a little spell of grieving here because over the next three, you know, sort of like few days, they were desolate. They were destroyed. And the world was rejoicing because it had beaten Jesus. But he said, but like giving birth, all right, it's painful, but it doesn't last long. Then it turns back into joy. And Jesus, he's just doing everything he can to reassure them and comfort them in this terrible few days that were going to come up for them when Jesus died. And, and they were thrown into complete and utter disarray. And, and then he goes on to reassure them again that anything you ask the Father in my name, he'll give to you. So more um, teaching there about answers to, to prayer. And, uh, and he says, Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I'll no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't, 
do, you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us to believe you came from God. They weren't even up phrasing their questions in a way that they could understand. But Jesus, obviously, could read their hearts, and, and in saying this, he's answered exactly what their hearts were saying. And, and you know, so, um, so that was good. And he said, you believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you'll be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things that you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And again he says, look, you're going to scatter. A dreadful time is going to come on you and you'll scatter. You're all going to desert me. You're going to leave me completely on my own. And he says, but of course I won't be on my own because obviously my Father is with me. And... Um, and then he says, look, I've told you these things so that in the world you may have peace. He says, you'll have trouble. He says, but I've overcome the world and therefore you can have peace. So basically that ends this incredibly condensed mass of teaching that Jesus gave the disciples at the Last Supper. You can see why they needed the Holy Spirit later on to bring it all to remembrance. I mean, you don't sit through a little kind of Bible study like that and remember it, especially when the heart of it, you're being told that the most dreadful time in your life is going to start tonight. You know, I mean, you just don't retain it. So obviously, hence the need for the Holy Spirit. Now, what happens is now, Jesus prays, and this is the, you know, the, the, the great prayer of John 17. And um, I'll read through it. Um, it has three sections. Jesus prays firstly for himself and then for the disciples, you know, the, the 11 there, and then he prays for all believers. So, so that therefore encompasses the, the whole church um, ourselves as well. So let, let's read through it. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And it was on the cross Jesus was glorified. It was not his great power, it was his weakness, his humility. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I have brought your glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Because obviously Jesus, his darkest hour is coming, but he's glad that he knows that he's going to be returning to the Father and, and back to the glory that he had before he became a human being. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Notice that the disciples were the fathers already before they were given to Jesus, because they were chosen. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, 
but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. That was Judas, obviously, he wasn't a believer. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not in the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And there you are. Jesus said, do you remember, that, that they shall know the truth and the truth shall make them free. And that we're sanctified by the truth. The application of the truth of God's word into our hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of truth. And it's, it's, it's through, through that that bit by bit we're sanctified, that the new life of Jesus is revealed in us more and more. He says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. <clears throat> For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And Jesus set himself apart totally for God to serve him. And that is the way that we must be as well. And basically what Jesus is doing there, he's saying, look, I've looked after them these three and a half years, but I'm, I'm going now, Father, all right? Now you take over. And Jesus is handing the care of the disciples over to God the Father in heaven. And now, having prayed for the eleven who were there with him at that time, Jesus now prays for the church throughout time. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Now that's us. We have believed in Jesus because of the message of these 11 men. Because if it hadn't been for them, the New Testament wouldn't have been written and no one would have even known anything about it. So this is praying for us. This is praying for all believers. And he prays that they may be one. Unity. Oneness. Remember, he's already said, love one another as I have loved you. This is the love within the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That is the oneness that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has. And Jesus is praying now that that oneness be reflected in the family of God. And he says, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. It's the oneness that Jesus has with the Father, and he prays that believers will experience that with each other. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And Jesus links the world knowing that he is who he claims to be by seeing the oneness of believers, the unity of believers. And it is the love of Jesus in our lives, in our community together, that plays such a lar large part in confirming that the Bible is true and that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
So Jesus is saying, look, I'm one with you, Father, you're one with me, Father, and they're one with me, Father, and they're one with you, Father. And can you see? And it's, it's, in a sense, it's like we've been brought into the Trinity. Not that we're part of the Trinity. We never become part of God. We share his life. We never become part of God. But if God existed in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the picture here is of an extended family. I mean, we're never part of the Trinity, but God has opened it up and, and he's brought us in. You know, it's a picture, um, if the Trinity, if marriage, mum and, you know, sort of like husband and wife is a picture of the relationship within the Trinity, then what we're talking about here is when they have children. The opening up, the taking of someone else into that exclusive relationship and thing that you've got going. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do. God wanted a family. He was absolutely complete in himself, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, but he wanted kids. And that's what it was all about. And he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And, and so that is, that's the prayer of Jesus and Jesus gets his prayer answered. And that's why the unity between brothers and sisters in the church is such a witness to the world that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Now, in, in chapter 18, um, Jesus now goes across the Kidron Valley and they go over to the Mount of Olives. Now, we know from the other Gospels at this point that, that Jesus does the prayer in Gethsemane. And remember, the disciples couldn't stay awake with him. But John, John skips that. Um, and he, he, he brings us in at the point where Judas arrives uh, with the soldiers and the officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So now the, 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 the gang turn up to arrest Jesus. Um, and Jesus asked them who they wanted. And uh, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. Although in, um, in your Bibles it says, I am he. In Greek, the he isn't there. It's actually, I am. And what happens is they fall back. They fall over. Um, kind of like get toronto as it were. And it's, it's sort of like here, Jesus is using the messianic name. Do you remember earlier on, we, you know, we saw in uh, the last the talk before, last I think it was, before Abraham was I am, and that God revealed himself to Moses out of the burning bush as I am. And it's almost as if here I think that probably the, the glory of Jesus just kind of like bursts through, maybe just for a microsecond, a bit like at the transfiguration. And, uh, and they fall back, they're just, you know, they, they're so stunned and awed and, you know, and so they, they kind of just, their, their legs go from underneath them. And obviously they, they, they recover themselves and Jesus says again, who do you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and, and he says, um, that's, that, that's me. And he says to them, let the disciples go. He says, I'm the one you want, let my disciples go. And John, in the narrative, said that this, this, this fulfilled what Jesus has said earlier on in chapter 6 about, I've not lost one of those you gave me. 
because at this point it was only Jesus who was crucified. The other disciples could have very easily been crucified as well, but in fact they weren't. Jesus did protect them right up until the, the end. Now at this point, Simon Peter, helpful as ever, um, cuts Malchus's ear off. Malchus was the high priest's servant, and he, he was in this, this group. And Peter draws the sword and cuts his ear off. Uh, Jesus tells him on and uh, tells him off, and uh, you know rebukes Peter, and, uh, and 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 says that 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 he must drink the cup the Father has given him. That Peter is not to interfere with what's going on. This is this is what is necessary for salvation. Jesus set this up himself. Here's Peter. Oh Lord, I'll protect you from all this arrest and crucifixion stuff. And Jesus saying, No, that's why I came. And we know from the other Gospels that that Jesus actually healed Malchus. He'd have sort of like gone and got the ear, probably said, what, he got ear then? And, and kind of healed him. Now, Jesus is now taken to Annas. Now, Annas should have been the high priest. He wasn't because the Romans had deposed him and in his place appointed his son-in-law called Caiaphas, all right? But, the, but lots of the Jews still looked on Annas as being the rightful high priest. So what happened is that he and Caiaphas, they divided their duties, kind of like two high priests. That's why there's more than one. Should have only been one, but there were two. And he's taken to Annas first. And um, at this point, I mean, John, John points out that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And then in the narrative, he just reminds his readers that Caiaphas was the one who had prophesied at the Sanhedrin, you know, it's good that one man die for the nation. You know, although he meant it politically, if Jesus dies, that'll keep Rome off our back. Although he meant it politically, it was like the Holy Spirit overruling him as high priest and making it like a prophecy. And that was back in chapter 11. And John just, in the narrative, reminds his readers of this. Um, also worth um, uh, pointing out that that John is the only gospel writer who records this visit to Annas. So Jesus is taken to Annas, all right, the high priest proper, and there's a trial in front of Annas. Now John is the only gospel that tells us that. The other gospel writers tell us about the trial that happened later on that night when Jesus was taken from Annas to Caiaphas. And there was another trial in front of Caiaphas, two high priests two trials, all right. Um, so John tells us that Jesus is now taken to Annas, but then immediately takes us back to Peter and we have Peter's first denial. Peter has followed on with an unnamed disciple. We don't know who the disciple is that, you know, that Peter had followed Jesus with. They kind of followed behind the game, as it were, in, in secret. And this unnamed disciple had contacts in Annas's house and could get Peter into the courtyard. So Peter, with this other disciple, is in the courtyard of Annas's house. And there'd have been a crowd there because they knew Jesus is being arrested and there was this trial, completely illegal trial, by Jewish law, because it was at night and there was a hundred things about it, you know, that was illegal. But there's a crowd outside, they know that Jesus is inside. And somebody says, Peter, you know, you were, you were with Jesus and Peter does denial, number one. And we saw at the end of last time's talk, didn't we, that when Peter was saying, Lord, I'll die for you, Jesus said, well, no, actually, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. So there's denial number one. Now we go back inside the house 
and Jesus before Annas and he's being questioned and Jesus says that his teaching was all done openly wasn't done in secret and that rather than him being put on trial they should first of all be questioning the people who heard his teaching because this questioning was illegal Jesus is being questioned on the basis of his teaching now under Jewish law the first thing that should have happened was that exactly what he should have been teach what he was teaching would be established from those who heard him first whereas they've just gone and got Jesus in here so the, these trials all the trials that follow you know there's Caiaphas Annas Pontius Pilate Herod they are all illegal mock trials they're an absolute joke um, and during during this trial Jesus is 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 punched in the face for saying that to Annas he says look you should be questioning my hearers first not me now that was a point of order and as a result of that they start punching Jesus in the face again illegal you see what kind of trial this is imagine being in a court and you know sort of like you plead innocent and the the, the bailiffs beat you up I mean that that's the sort of thing that you've got here and um, and now Annas having finished with him now sends him and Jesus is all tied up he's bound up now Jesus is sent to Caiaphas and then you get back out into the courtyard Peter's second and third denials uh, when Peter denies Jesus another two times and you'll remember at the end of the third time uh, he, he saw Jesus and he went out and wept bitterly and of course he would have seen Jesus being brought out of Annas's house in chains as they were then taking him on to Caiaphas's house remember by now this is all in the middle of the night now John skips the trial before Caiaphas because the other Gospels dealt with that one so he skips that um, completely and then in verse 28 which we'll read from now John picks it up again when Jesus has been taken from Caiaphas from the second trial to be before Pilate so we'll just read from verse 28 the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor by now it was early morning to avoid ceremonial uncleanness the Jews did not enter the palace they wanted to be able to eat the Passover so Pilate came out to them and said what charges are you bringing against this man if he were not a criminal they replied we would not hand him over to you Pilate said take him yourselves judge him by your law but we have no right to execute anyone the Jews objected that's because when Rome occupied the nation they took away the right of capital punishment only Rome could put someone to death and the Jews wanted Jesus killed this happens so that the words of Jesus spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die will be fulfilled because crucifixion was Roman death. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews but now my kingdom is from another place because Jesus is going to reign on the earth in the future not then, in the future you are a king then, said Pilate Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king in fact for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth everyone on the side of truth listens to me what is truth? Pilate asked with this he went out again to the Jews and said I find no basis for a charge against him but it is your custom for me to release it, to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? 
they shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. And this was a custom, and any prisoner the Jews could have said, free him. And the choice was between Jesus and Barabbas, who was a murderer and a terrorist. And they chose Barabbas, which was absolutely incredible. So Pilate's trying to all the time put Jesus back, you know, the Jews you sorted out, and the Jews keep saying, no, Pilate, you've got to sort him out, because the Jews wanted him killed, and Pilate was the only one who could have actually arranged for that to happen. Let's carry on on verse from uh, chapter 19. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. So Jesus is now being beaten and humiliated by the Roman soldiers. And this crown of thorns, this would have been, you know, sort of like knives going down through his scalp. I mean, this wasn't like a little, you know, like when you get mock ones that you put on the head. This would have been really big spikes driven down hard into his head. Uh, it, it was, you can't begin to understand the suffering Jesus is beginning to go through. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. I claim to be God. The Jews knew full well the claim to be the Son of God was the claim to be God become a man. When Pilate heard this, he was more afraid, went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realise I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting. And that, that you have no power over me except what's been given to you. Jesus gave that power to Pilate. Jesus is setting this up. Jesus is in control here. Um, the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And of course, what they're doing now, they're threatening Pilate. If, 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 if there'd have been uproar over this, Rome would have been displeased with Pilate. And, and now Pilate just gives in for the easy life. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. What an incredible thing for Annas and Caiaphas to say. We have no king but Caesar. The Jews would have died before they acknowledged Caesar as their king. But they're doing it because they want Jesus dead. So they're actually here. They're willing to call the occupying Roman emperor a king in order to get shot of Jesus, who was actually their real king. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And so 
now we have the crucifixion. We know from other Gospels that Jesus went before Herod. Um, but John skips that. And uh, John tells us that he was crucified between two other men. And we know from the other Gospels that they were thieves, not one of them became a Christian and was saved at the last minute. And um, Pilate put a sign over the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, when, when, when the Romans crucified somebody, they, they nailed on, on the cross the, the, the crime for which they were dying for, murder, theft, whatever. Um, but of course, Pilate, what crime could he put on Jesus? Jesus hadn't committed a crime. So Pilate put King of the Jews, which is absolutely ironic, because that is exactly Jesus' crime. His crime was that he was God. That was his crime. That was why Israel wanted to get shot of him. And, uh, and the, 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 the chief priests go to Pilate and they said, look, take that down. You, you can't put that up there. And, um, you know, and, and Pilate said, no, what I've written stays written. And uh, you're remembering Colossians. Paul talks about how, you know, the sins and the grievances against us were nailed to the cross. And that is Paul referring to this custom. And the point was, when Jesus died on the cross, what was written there wasn't his sin. He, he hadn't sinned. But the point was, it was the sins of the world that were nailed to that cross. And, uh, you know, that was, that was God dealing with, with, with the problem. Then, while Jesus is on the cross, the, disciple, uh, the, 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 the soldiers divide his garments. So they're sharing out his, his clothes. And uh, John points out in the, Naz you know, in, um, in the Gospel that that, that that fulfilled Psalm 22, verse 18. Um, just going to read verse 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, as we know that was John himself, the Gospel writer, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home, and Jesus hands Mary, his mother, over to the care of John. I mean, not thinking about himself on the cross, at that point, worrying about his mum. And, uh, well, that's, that's how Jesus was, wasn't it? Then later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of stone vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He knew the sin of the world was dealt with. He knew that was long enough. So Jesus said, Right, that's it, I'm off now. He was totally, utterly in control. He said, No man takes my life, I lay it down, and I can take it back again. Three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead. He took his life back. But he dies here, not when he was, a, you know, he absolutely died when he chose to die. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Crucifixion took ages to die, 36 hours almost. It was a horrible death. But what they would do, if they wanted people to die quickly, they'd break their legs. And in breaking their legs, you couldn't push up with your legs, nails through your feet. And you could push up on the nails, and that would enable you to keep breathing. 
if you broke the legs, the body slumped and you'd suffocate in a few minutes. Um, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified and then those of the other. So they, the two thieves, they're killed now. They break their legs and they'd have suffocated in a, you know, a few minutes. When they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. Um, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. This, this was just kind of like double-checking he was dead. And it was amazing he was dead. He shouldn't have been dead that quickly. Should have taken him much longer to die, but Jesus died when he was ready to die. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so the scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Um, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now, the, the first one there is Psalm 34, about his bones not being broken, and the second one, about they'll look on him whom they've pierced, was Zechariah chapter 12. I mean, what incredible fulfilments of Old Testament prophecy. Even in Jesus' dying, it was obvious to everyone who looked on, all the Jews who knew the Old Testament, that he was um, their Messiah. And then Joseph of Arimathea gets permission from Pilate to have Jesus' body and uh, lays it in his own tomb. And John tells us at this point that he was actually a secret disciple um, because he was afraid of the Jews. Um, and John also tells us that he was helped in this by Nicodemus. Now, chapter 20, um, so we, we, we have Jesus laid in Joseph's tomb. And then a couple of days pass, chapter 20, and um, so this is early on the Sunday morning, kind of like the middle of the night, Saturday night, Sunday morning. And uh, Mary goes to the tomb, finds this stone rolled away, and the body gone. And uh, she, she, she runs to Simon Peter and, uh, and to the disciple Jesus loved. So this is John himself. Um, and tells them that the tomb was empty. Uh, Peter and John run to the tomb and they find Jesus' grave clothes neatly folded up. And John, the disciple Jesus loved, believed. He fell in. He was the first to fall in. But in the narrative he adds that they, they still didn't really have any understanding about Jesus rising from the dead. Even at this point the disciples, they they didn't really know what was going on. They went home, um, but Mary stayed outside the tomb, crying. And she sees two angels in the tomb. Didn't, didn't, she didn't realise probably at first they were angels, but she sees two angels in the tomb. And they ask her why she was crying. And she said it's because she didn't know where her Lord was. It's a lovely thing to say. Because I don't know where my Lord is, she said. Then Jesus comes and stands next to her. But she didn't realise it was him. She thought it was the gardener. And Jesus chose at that, you know, precise second not to reveal himself who he actually was. And he says, why, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she just says, have you moved the body? still thinking it was the gardener. 
Have you moved him? And then Jesus said, Mary. And as soon as Jesus said, Mary, Mary realised who it is, and, and, and she said, Teacher, Rabboni. Then Jesus tells her that she mustn't hold him, touch him, until he's ascended to the Father. So by now she's hugging him. <laughs> and he says, no, Mary, not yet, you can't, because he hadn't ascended yet. So he, he, and, and, and he ascended for the first time later that morning. He had to go back to the Father as the first fruits. So his father had to have him first, not Mary. So Mary's hugging him. He says, no, not yet, Mary. You can't, can't touch me yet. So I haven't been to the Father. Um, and he, he tells her to go and tell his brothers. He said, go, go and tell my brothers, which would have included the disciples and Jesus, his half-brothers as well, obviously. Um, and he says, tell them that I'm returning to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Tell them that I'm, I'm going to ascend now. And so Mary goes and she finds all the disciples together now. She says, I've, I've seen the Lord. And, um, and then obviously very shortly after that, Jesus ascended. And we know that because later on he did let the people touch him. Um, now, at this, at this point, Jesus is appearing to people all over the place. And next time, we're, we're going to do a talk and we're going to tie the chronology of all the Gospels together, exactly what happened in what order. And we'll, we'll, we'll be spending quite a bit of time on the resurrection appearances. So I'll be putting together all the information that all the Gospels give, and, and we're going to do a chronological account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we'll do that next time. Um, and then... That evening, so this is the same evening that Jesus rose again from the dead, the disciples are behind locked doors because they're still fighting with the Jews, so they're still in hiding. Um, although only one of them wasn't there, Thomas, remember the one called Didymus, um, he wasn't there. <clears throat> and Jesus stood amongst them and he said, Peace be with you. And, um, and he shows them his hands and his side and, and they were overjoyed and they realised, crumbs, he's alive. So there they are in the locked room and Jesus is just there amongst them and um, I'm going to read again Jesus said peace be with you as the father has sent me I am sending you and with that he breathed on them and said receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive anyone's sins they're forgiven if you do not forgive their sins they are not forgiven remember Jesus said the Holy Spirit he's with you but he will be in you now Jesus breathes on them, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in them. This is the equivalent, really, of them being born again. They were baptised with the Spirit later on at Pentecost, weren't they? And uh, when, when, when Jesus says, if you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven, the literal Greek is, those sins you forgive have already been forgiven. Forgive because they've already been forgiven. That, that, that's the literal Greek. And of course, it's not that, you know, sort of like, you know, Catholic stuff about you're forgiven when priests declare your forgiveness. That is just saying that the very gospel we preach is that if people believe, they'll be forgiven of their sins. So therefore, we bring that affirmation to them where the means we can assure people, we can reassure each other that our sins are forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were 
and put my hand into his side. I'll not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas didn't need to put his finger anyway, just fell on the floor and he said, My Lord and my God. And notice, here's a Jew falling at Jesus' feet and saying, My Lord and my God. Jesus accepts the worship. Because the disciples knew full well that this was God become man. Exactly how, what Jesus said. And Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote the Gospel. It's ultimately evangelistic so that people could come to know Jesus and, and be saved. And in chapter 21, we have a later appearance, another occasion when Jesus appeared to the disciples. And uh, afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realise it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? They answered, No. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat. This is Peter, isn't it? I can't wait for the boat. I'm going to swim. What I like about Peter. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. Jesus, uh, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. I shepherd my sheep, be, a, be an elder, be a leader to my people. Again Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, 
do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know I love you. Can you see Jesus is kind of three times he said, do you love me? Because three times Peter betrayed him. This isn't Jesus rubbing salt into the wound. But Peter needed to know the truth about himself. Do you remember that Jesus had said to him earlier that, look, when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Because the problem with Peter is that of himself he was successful. It's no use having successful people leading God's people, because God's people are failures. You need to be led by someone you can identify with. Peter just hadn't realised what a failure he was. Now he does. And so in appointing him to be a leader to God's people, Jesus makes sure that Peter realises what an abject failure he himself has been. And therefore, he would never ever stop being compassionate and having sympathy in regards to the people he was leading. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you rolled, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This was, was Jesus predicting that, that Peter would eventually be martyred, which, which he was. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Jesus saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? So this is John, the disciple Jesus loved. Peter says, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Follow me. What Jesus is saying, well, never mind about him, you follow me, Peter. And then John says, because of this, the rumour spread amongst the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So they sort of think, oh, is this bloke never going to die? Well, obviously he did. But Jesus said, look, you know, look, I can keep him alive till I come back if I want. Peter, mind your own beeswax, really, is what he's saying. You, you follow me, Peter. Never mind about John. And... Um, and then John, he says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. This was John himself, you know, tying it up. And then he just ends his gospel. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. I must admit there are times when I think, Lord, why is this book you've given us so big? <laughs> it's not easy to manage. Then you realise, well, no, actually, crumbs, it's a miracle. It's so small, isn't it? When you think what it's dealing with. And John says, if everything Jesus had done had been written, then just the New Testament would be bigger than all the libraries in the world. So we know from that we have the merest glimpse of the life and ministry of Jesus. All that we do have is just the merest glimpse. It was actually even more wonderful and incredible than what we actually have here in the New Testament because we've only got a bit of it. So there ended the Gospels, but next time, as I say, we're going to put all the Gospels together and do a chronology of Jesus' life, death and miracles and paying particular attention to his last week in the lead-up to the crucifixion. The crucifixion itself and then what happened after Jesus rose again from the dead until he eventually ascended back
finally into heaven. So we'll pick up with that next time.